0: Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. A bipartisan group of US lawmakers have this month lobbied President Joe Biden to withdraw the extradition request and also... Halts all prosecutorial proceedings against Julian Assange, saying it's having a chilling effect on the freedom of the press and also compromises the country's alliance with Australia. This came after an Australian parliamentary delegation recently visited the US to lobby for the WikiLeaks founders' release and Anthony Albanese's high-profile visit, which he said involved conversations about Julian's plight. So what now for the campaign to free Julian Assange? John Shipton is Assange's father, whose efforts to secure his son's freedom were explored in the two-part documentary, Ithaca. And John joins me now in studio. Hello, it's uh, great to have you here at Oh,
1: uh, Thank you. And uh, again, it's a pleasure to call by.
0: And, I mean, there's been a lot of activity over in the US in recent months. How do, I guess, the the words and actions of lawmakers over there, uh, do they give you any cause for hope that we're sort of moving in the right direction?
1: Yeah, well, how can I say? The Australian public and the Assange supporters have done the job and provided a, a... a solid foundation for the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister to move to free Julian. Um, uh, They also demonstrated uh, in the United States that the support is on both sides of the aisle, the Republicans and uh, the uh, Democrats. Um, The 16 of those people signed a a letter to uh, President Biden. I'll just make the point... uh, it's sort of amusing that uh, the foreign minister of Australia keeps on saying that this is a, uh, a matter for the Department of Justice in the United States uh, and nothing to do with the White House administration. And yet, I'd point out to Foreign Minister Wong that uh, the uh, 16 uh, rep- Congress people addressed their letter directly to the President of the United States requesting that the uh, charges be dropped. Now, this has happened many times before, that uh, um, uh, charges uh, have been uh, dropped or uh, a commendation made uh, uh, in uh, many, different presidents, many different presidents' administrations. So it's not at all an unusual request.
0: What I suppose is unusual is getting Democrats and and Republicans to agree on anything. Also, the Australian cross-parliamentary delegation, I mean, it's made up of people like Barnaby Joyce, um, the Greens, David Shoebridge, Monique Ryan, members of the Liberal um, and Labor parties as well. I mean, what is it about this issue that seems to galvanise support across the aisle?
1: Well, uh, you have two things that uh, are sort of fascinating. One is that... uh, with an umbrella concern like the sovereignty of Australia, the principles that surround uh, Julian's uh, persecution have amalgamated uh, the Greens right through to the National Liberal Party and the independents in between. So it uh, is a model uh, for uh, other um, people who are pursuing... uh, let's say, social justice issues uh, that the uh, Assange uh, campaign has done. Now, I give all praise to all of those members of the delegations uh, taking their time and the difficulties to fly to Washington and to put, put the Australian case also... Uh, I give all praise to those Congress people who welcomed the Australian delegation and uh, made it possible for the delegation to make its points really clear that this principle is uh, the the principle that surrounds the persecution of Julian Assange, an Australian citizen who's broken no laws in the United States and also... uh, Is a beneficiary of uh, the First Amendment, the capacity to uh, publish and speak freely about uh, matters. Uh, Those elements have amalgamated uh, the uh, the umbrella group and uh, they've pursued it successfully in uh, Washington.
0: I mean, we read about these sort of cross-party delegations and, and, as you say, that that letter that's been signed by a group of both Republicans and Democrats um, at that sort of high level of, of politics, I suppose. What, what does sort of... How, how much does Julian engage with this sort of stuff that we sort of read about in the news about? I mean, what's sort of his impression of um, people sort of talking about his plight to the media and advocating for his release?
1: Well, uh, I... You know, Julian uh, gets a ten-minute phone call to me um, and then it's guillotined to ten minutes. So often <laughs> a conversation that uh, you embark upon and you get to the point after, you know, discussing how the kids are and so on, Yeah, uh, it uh, gets cut off. You
0: talk about the important stuff first.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, a, like a, you know, he's got two little kids and... Um, Stella and we have uh, relatives in common Gabrielle and his other children that we speak about Um, but it's the public voice of the supporters that have carried the day you know and I want to make that really that point really strongly the six Parliamentarians that went to the United States and the, the 50 parliamentarians that are in the parliamentary Assange support group rest upon the shoulders of us. We carry them and we carry them forward and we assist them to do what is virtuous and proper. Mm.
0: I mean, you mentioned earlier that there's been um you know some some suggestions and arguments put forward by the likes of, of Penny Wong and, and even sort of Joe Biden himself. Is that this you know, this issue is, is a judicial issue, that it's not the role of the president necessarily to intervene in, in judicial affairs and the like, but also it's completely implicated in diplomatic relations. You know, we've had Albanese over in, in the US recently where, you know, he said he did raise Julian Assange's plights with the president. I mean, what's what's your your sense of that, the extent to which there, there might be any willingness to sort of move on dropping the charges against him?
1: Uh, You know, there's so much uh, political skills involved that, uh, you know, a simple man like me, I just evaluate it this way, that it's clearly been a political persecution from the very start. That is 14 years of it. Much of it. Uh, larded with malice Um, if the Prime Minister of Australia uh, converses with the President of the United States over Julian Assange's persecution it's clearly political (laughs) absolutely clearly lay down Mazer political Um, you can then, then they put up this thing, oh, there's a, a separation between the Department of Justice and the, the administration in the White House. They keep saying that despite the fact that saying it politically is a political act. It is not actually uh, an act that uh, expands upon the Department of Justice involvement in this posh prosecution.
0: Speaking with John Shipton, Julian Assange's father, one of the, the leading voices in the campaign to um, to prevent Julian Assange's extradition from the UK to the United States and also for the charges against him to be dropped. And I mean, on, on the politics and the strategy side of things, I mean, you know, we're, we're coming closer to an election year over in the States as well. And, I mean, I think I've heard you speak about this before, but I don't imagine it would necessarily be in the interest of Joe Biden to have Julian Assange, you know, up on the stand at a time when there's a lot of public support for him and his plight. I mean, what's your sense of how that sort of plays in to this this strategy?
1: Oh, uh, I don't. you know, it's such a terrible mess that the... I understand that the judiciary in the United Kingdom and the judiciary in the United States want nothing to do with the matter. That's what I'm told. Um, Understanding that, and also reverting to my previous statement that it's clearly a political prosecution and persecution, um, then that becomes a matter of political timing. The United States has control over the timing. So uh, what that means, of course, is there'd be no court case held uh, before the election Mm. if Julian were to be, uh, by some um, error of fortune, sent to the United States. Uh, that's a matter is settled they have control over when he would appear in court so that that's not you know a consideration except that the uh, position of australia keeps on reverberating around the world uh, you know every president in the uh South America, every major country has given support to Julian Assange and saying that he should be free. Every European parliament, with the exception of Sweden, has an Assange uh, group within it. So millions of people around the world uh, uh, support Julian uh, and wish to be able to uh, read freely. Uh, and understand the news with the assistance of uh, analysts all over the Internet. So this is a sort of magnificent phenomenon that we see amplified and reverberating constantly every Sunday uh, over the Palestinian... uh, I'm not going to say issue, over the Palestinian
0: People out uh, there on the streets and yeah, yeah. at the uh, standing uh, up. For what I'm they just going to
1: say the word: the Palestinian genocide. You know.
0: Yeah, and that's. I mean, uh, you know, I acknowledge that's a word that the sensitivities out there around that, but um, but you know, we'll let that that sit. And I mean, this with this issue, I mean, the, the, the current government has been more um, sort of prominent in its support for Julian Assange and the previous government of course. You do a lot of travel around the world. You speak to um, to, to people and lawmakers in, in many different countries. Have, what, what's the nature of your conversations with MPs here in Australia? I mean have you really noticed much more intent to their desire to, to have the charges against him dropped?
1: Well uh, there's the support group is there. Um, the that... You know, politics is sort of ambivalent and they pick the issue of the day and they also uh, allocate strength to particular issues. But with the Julian Assange thing, you'll lose no votes for supporting Julian Assange, but you will get votes whichever side of the parliamentary divide you're on and whichever... Uh, whatever your political persuasion is you will get support so this is really uh, a significant understanding
0: I understand there's been some talk of a potential plea deal with Julian Assange as well floated with the U.S. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy do you have any sense of whether there's there's much sort of truth to that or much momentum
1: well I I don't know you know uh, it's sort of when Caroline mentioned that to the delegation of uh, Australian parliamentarians that went to see her uh, earlier this year, uh, and then it started to be floated around the place and, and uh, parliamentarians answered constituents' letters, letters saying that this uh, is available. But I've actually heard nothing of it. Uh, from uh, my contacts in the United States uh, and uh, uh, nothing of it uh, has been... uh, Let me start again. Nothing of it, of the detail within such a proposition has been announced by any spokesperson for the government. Mm. So it really gets a bit sort of hard to believe that placing... The onus on Julian to make a deal and implying that a deal has been put out there is another aspect of uh, the uh, institutions of state removing from themselves the responsibility to progress this matter which has come before Parliament. Parliament's made its point of view clear and the executive... Uh, has said, you know, the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader have said that they support the ending of this matter. However, the institutions of state keep on producing uh, red herrings, like uh, there's a deal out there and Julian Mm. has to take it. What has to happen is the institutions of state bring to the prime minister a series of solutions to this matter and the prime minister chooses what uh, he can do politically uh, to solve it um, i uh, you know DFAT's uh, involvement the department of foreign affairs and trade involvement in this issue for the last 14 years has been uh, well nothing less than uh, troubling
0: yeah. And, I mean, I know the situations are, are, are very different, but I'm wondering whether that the return of, of Chiang Lei um, from imprisonment in China, whether that has any implications at all for the case involving Julian Assange. I mean, do you think it does or, or is it just a totally separate issue?
1: Well, I, I think that they, we just... Uh... It must keep these issues clear and separate and not meld them into one, which uh, enables uh, governments to excuse themselves. They're saying, you know, this one is particularly different, difficult, mm-hmm. but we solved that one and so on. Uh, um, uh, if we keep the issues really clear in our minds, you know, this is 14 years now that the... the uh, involvement of the Prime Minister since he took, uh, uh, since the Labor Party took government is a positive element, that the matter is still unsolved, is not a positive element, that it took uh, 13 and a half years for the uh, government of Australia and the institutions of Australia to become positively, even to the extent of words, positively involved in solving the problem of a persecution of an Australian citizen 13 and a half years. That acquiescence becomes complicity. We can all see that, you know, ordinary folk like me can see that if the government sits on its hands, does nothing and says it's up to the courts when we can all clearly see that it's a political prosecution, it becomes complicity. It's clear.
0: This, uh, your advocacy in support of your son, Julian Assange, takes, you know, a lot of your time. You do a lot of travel and speaking arrangements, um, commitments as well as part of it, along with, with your son, Gabriel. I mean, what's what's the next steps for your ag- advocacy? Do you have, have a sense of kind of what, what comes next or kind of kiss, keep speaking out as you have been for so long?
1: Well, you know, we just keep uh, building. Um, I think uh, it was a marvellous event last week when the... Uh, Australian Financial Financial Review had 19 pages uh, on the delegation of parliamentarians to the United States pursuing the matter of Julian's freedom. Two items in that. One is the actuality of uh, an Australian citizen's prosecution and uh, false prosecution by the united states and the second is really heartening it's an act of sovereignty for australia and one of the very few that we have seen uh in well the last 25 years john it's been great
0: having you into triple r thanks so much for being so generous with your time and all the best going forward
1: thank you very much it's a Heartening to be invited. Triple
0: R. Since the findings of the Robodebt Royal Commission were delivered, the federal government has been trumpeting its pledge to adopt all 56 recommendations. That all sounds pretty good, except there are actually 57 of them. Rick Morton is a reporter with the Saturday Paper and a freshly minted Walkley Award winner for his reporting on RoboDebt. He's been on the case of the missing recommendation and joins me now on the line. Hey, Rick, and um, firstly, big congrats on the recognition. It's good that that work that you've done on RoboDebt has been celebrated.
2: Thank you, Dylan. That's very kind of you. I'm I'm particularly glad that RoboDebt, the subject, got recognised because... It is one of the most egregious things that has ever happened uh, by, you know, to Australian people by the Australian government. And I don't think the story is anywhere close to being finished yet.
0: Well, that's right. The saga very much continues. So tell us what's going on here. When did the number of recommendations fall from 57 to 56?
2: Well, I mean, even on the day that the final report was released by Commissioner Catherine Holmes was given to the Governor-General and there was a big press conference with the Prime Minister and Bill Shorten, From that day until mid-October, all Labor MPs were referring to 57 recommendations in this report. And they're very clearly set out. The report says itself in black and... Literally in black and white, there are 57 recommendations. Here they are, and then lists them. Uh, Suddenly that changes in mid-October, and then by the time the government releases its response to that Royal Commission final report just a couple of weeks ago, um, not only are they saying they've, uh, you know, adopted or adopted in principle... 56, but when asked directly about the 57th recommendation, the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus says, oh, that's not a recommendation, that's just a comment, which is, out of this world, I I was not expecting that, because it's it's just not true.
0: Yeah, I I mean, it it reads like an episode of Utopia or something that brings into question, you know, what's a recommendation, what's not a recommendation. I mean, what is the, the reasoning that Attorney General Mark Dreyfus is applying to sort of get out of um, uh, the fact that they're, you know, 57 rather than 56 recommendations?
2: Yeah, and I, I, should, be, I should be clear here, the 53th, 57th recommendation is one of the two most critical. Mm. So it, it it is a recommendation from Commissioner Holmes, and I know for a fact that it was written by Commissioner Holmes as a recommendation, and nothing else, uh, that it was to repeal Section 34 of the Freedom of Information Act, essentially to make sure that governments can't just rubber-stamp documents with Cabinet in confidence and keep them out of the public eye forever, um, unless they've got a very, very good reason, which is what happened with Robert. There were briefs and documents that were marked as Cabinet in confidence that were not Cabinet documents, and that had they been released under FOI, In 2015 or 2016, we could have prevented people from dying. We could have prevented potentially hundreds of thousands of people from suffering and having their lives completely upturned. Now, what is the reason for the Attorney-General's specious remark at that press conference when they announced their response? It's literally semantics. Mm. His office says, oh, it didn't have recommendation in front of it. Um, it It was a closing observation. Now... It's very believable when you hear that and you don't know much about the report, but when you re- read all 1,000 pages of the report from start to finish, there is a list of 57 recommendations at the start, a summary, which includes this one, and then every recommendation is made in the chapter in which it appears. And so there's a chapter on the AAT and there's a chapter on legal frameworks and you know, all this kind of stuff. And the final chapter is called Closing Observations, but it's not the name of the recommendation. The recommendation appears in there, and again, helpfully, just after that, They say, for a handy summary, go back to the summary of 57 at the start. Mm. Now, an entire attorney general's department of people who are lawyers, but also public policy experts designed to, you know, whose whole job is to look at the laws in Australia, they did not read this report and think, oh, that's not a recommendation. And I'm pretty convinced by that because they wouldn't answer my questions directly. Only the minister's office would.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, I mean, the government could have come out and said, look, we'll adopt uh, 56 of the recommendations as one that we won't adopt, but, of course, that's not really as good a news story as saying that you are going to adopt and, and take heed of all the recommendations included in this, um, th- this report. So, I mean, can you just talk to us a little bit about how common it is for governments to slap Cabinet in confidence on documents to prevent it, being, basically, to prevent transparency?
2: Yeah, and, and so that would tell you that there's plenty of exemptions um, to keep documents secret, and there are. So, you know, if there was a document covered by legal professional privilege, like legal advice, that will never get released under why because that's a, a working document, so to speak. Um, I've had freedom of information requests refused because they might damage Commonwealth state relations. Um, and again, under pretty specious grounds, um, in, in fact, I asked for one document years ago and it was denied on those grounds, and then it was just released publicly this year Mm. (laughs) because they wanted to prove a point. Uh, So, you know, the grounds are not... The exemptions are there. Um, But with RoboDead in particular... Excuse me, I'm starting to lose my voice now. With RoboDead in particular, um, there were particular... So there was a brief from the department to Scott Morrison, who was the Minister for Social Services, in February 2015. That was... It's called the Executive Minute. That brief had the detail in it that did, um, before it had that name, was going to need legislative change. And when the policy finally went to Cabinet just a few weeks later, the Cabinet new policy proposal, which is a Cabinet document, it probably wouldn't have been released. It made no mention of the fact that legislation was needed mm. or might be needed. But the thing is, the original departmental brief, which is a document that should have been available under FOI, I've FOI ministerial briefs before, and I've been given them, including about the aged care royal commission and funding a couple of years ago. Um, if that had been released, the public would have known that the original advice was that legislation was required, and they would have known that legislation, just from you know the bare facts, was not done for this policy. And then the questions to be asked: what happened? And that leaves them nowhere to hide. And that was the one thing that allowed Robert, this secrecy, this ability to disappear early mistakes is what allowed that scheme to survive for as long as it did. And the reason the government didn't want to accept 57, even in principle, was because they had no intention of even making things easier for freedom of information. Mm. Whereas you'll see there's about six or seven other recommendations that they've accepted in principle, which still amount to basically a rejection, but they still get to say, oh, look, we agree with you. The sentiment. And so they still get their quote unquote good news story at the top while being completely duplicitous about the actual um, intent of the commissioner.
0: Yeah. Speaking with Rick Morton, journalist with the Saturday Paper, all about his reporting to the government's response to Robodebt in the case of the disappeared recommendation number 57 from the, the Royal Commission's. Report and I suppose the government's response to that report. I mean, part of what, what emerged through you know your reporting on roadbed and some other very committed journalists as well was not just the inherent cruelty of the system, but very much about you know the real flaws in how decisions are made. To what extent could that be remedied if the government sort of doesn't proceed with, with any changes at all to the way that the FOI and secrecy is managed at at the sort of top level? I suppose.
2: Yeah. I mean, that is the question, right? And so there are, there are two recommendations. One is that public servants, there need to be better standards about record keeping in the public service because public servants throughout Robodet made key decisions that were not committed to writing. So no documents were created in some cases. Um, and the reason we know anything about Robodet at all is essentially from the documents that we've been able to get through the, the powers of compulsion from the Royal Commission people's memories faltered. they pretended they didn't know, they gave all They prevaricated on the stand. So one of the recommendations is that there need to be standards around document keeping and the government accepted this recommendation but in its acceptance there is no discussion, all they want to do is create a, a guideline right, but mm-hmm. there is no chatter about making this part of the code of conduct and so you can have all the standards and guidelines you want but if the public service code of conduct does not contain a particular offence and a particular sanction for failing to commit major decisions to writing, then nothing changes. And then, of course, as we've just been discussing, they've rejected the FOI one completely. They had no intention of doing that one. And the thing about Robert is it's, it's about secrecy, right? Um, the thing... People didn't even know what this thing was called. So when the budget was put in... When it was put in the budget in 2015... It was just called Strengthening the Integrity of Welfare Payments, the SUWIP, which is one of the worst acronyms I've ever heard. (laughs) Uh, And that's how they say it, SUWIP. It didn't actually say what they were doing. They just said, increase compliance, suddenly we're going to get $1.2 billion. Mm. There was no detail in there about what was actually happening. And so again, there was no name for this program. There was no agreed form of words about how to identify it internally, to the point that there was a the very first Senate inquiry designed to look into Robidett, named the wrong budget measure. Yeah. So the idea that we, we need information to pursue these things in the public arena is the most important one. Absolutely. It's the only one that allows us to go after these things.
0: Yeah, uh, I've got... I mean, this is sort of an unfair and very big question, but we, mm. we saw through, through the RoboDebt Royal Commission, you know, warts and all um, kind of coverage of just, you know, the impact this has had on people, and that's what fundamentally matters here, is the people who are on welfare who um, experienced incredible distress. And as you said, you know, there were people who lost their lives um, uh, as, as related to their experience with the RoboDebt. I mean, you've also reported on um, other issues in Australia's welfare systems, such as the use of sort of private profit-making companies and how they, in some instances, Have the power to actually pull welfare payments from people? I mean, how confident are you that there have been the kinds of changes to Australia's uh, welfare system that we really need to make sure that there isn't an ongoing human cost in the way that these systems actually work?
2: I I mean, I'm not overly confident. Uh, I think, you know, I think, you know, I'm still waiting to see what the government's response is going to be to its inquiries parliamentary inquiry into Workforce Australia, which is mm. those privatised employment services providers. But already they're making noise that, you know, you've got to have some kind of mutual obligation. And frankly, you don't. <laughs> um, it's it, it's the conditionality in our welfare system that created Robodex. Um, because these were people who were trying to work. They were trying to do what the government wanted them to do, which was find work. And in doing that, uh, because of all the conditions we attach to this stuff, because we don't trust people administer their own poverty payment. We make them jump through all of these hoops including these employment service providers who can then penalize you when something's gone wrong even when they haven't bothered to check whether there's a genuine reason for something to have gone wrong i.e the bus didn't make it, um, your car broke down, even if you tell them sometimes they can to penalize your payment and stop it and suspend it. And so this whole system which costs in terms of workforce Australia costs 1.7 billion dollars a year is literally a waste of money in almost every... It doesn't get people work. Um, They're allowed to claim bonus payments from the government for shifting people sideways into their own training companies so they can just say, oh, we put you in training, which, by the way, we own that company, so we're making double from this unemployed person. Uh, And then when they do get people work, suddenly after three or four or six months, they're not watching anymore to see if that person becomes unemployed again because the work they're getting people into is almost universally appalling and wouldn't pass muster um, in the most basic union campaign. And so, no, I'm not confident Mm. that things are changing. And the thing is about Robodad is it was illegal, but it could have been legal. They could have changed the law and we wouldn't have had a leg to stand on. It would have been immoral
0: and wrong, but they still could have done it. Hugely appreciate your time this morning, Rick, and for continuing to shine a light on these super important issues. Thanks so much and hope to chat again in the future. Yeah, thanks Dylan. I appreciate it.
3: Triple R
0: If someone experiences mental distress and might be perceived to cause some kind of disturbance, there's a good chance they'll be met in the first instance by police From there, and depending on their state, they could be physically apprehended potentially with capsicum stray or a taser, leading to further harm A new report, led by researchers from Trobe University, has called for changes to how cases of mental distress are managed with mental health professionals rather than police attending to people as a first port of contact The study was co-designed by researchers with lived experience, and to talk about it more, I'm very pleased to be joined by Panos uh, Karanikolas and also uh, Associate Professor Chris Mailer, both of whom work at La Trobe University. Parnos, Chris, hello. Great to have you here.
3: Thanks for having us on the show.
0: No worries. Um, and Chris, have we got you? I just want to make sure I can hear you loud and clear. Yep. Hi,
3: Dylan.
4: How are you going?
0: Great. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Um, so I'll start with you, Chris. Tell us about the, the need for this study. What was the impetus behind putting this together?
4: This came out of uh, a process undertaken by the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council, which is Victoria's peak body for mental health consumers. And people who, members and other people who've used mental health services, identified this issue of being apprehended by police and having a negative experience as something that really needed policy attention, really needed to be. Um, really needed to be addressed. And it was also something that was picked up by the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. They made a a recommendation that police be replaced by paramedics as first responders for mental health crisis.
0: And had there been any moves to sort of push that forward? Or do you see this research as one step towards hopefully reforming it in that direction?
4: Look, we think that the Royal Commission recommendation or, or more importantly, the participants of this study felt that the recommendation didn't go far enough. So Mm. people wanted paramedics rather than police. They were preferred. But neither paramedics nor police have the time or the training or the resourcing to be able to spend the time with people that they need. And so... uh, our understanding is that that reform has stalled and that the government's focusing on reducing ambulance response times before they add more work to to, to Ambulance um, uh, Victoria, which is very understandable. But in the meantime, we've still got police as first responders for people who are experiencing mental distress.
0: Yeah. And Panos, you're a PhD candidate in, in crime justice and legal studies over at La Trobe. What was your involvement in, in this study?
3: Yeah, so the approach that we took to this research um, was a bit different to more traditional research approaches. So we used a co-production approach, which means that people who have a lived experience of the issue that we were looking at, um, police apprehension, were involved um, at all stages of the project. So we had a lived experience leadership group um, that was really involved in making strategic Decision making, we were involved in interviewing participants um, conducting the analysis. And so I was involved. Um, I have a lived experience myself. Um, and so I was involved as part of that leadership group. And um, just want to also acknowledge that um, the amazing project lead, Rory Randall, who's a um, lived experience academic, was really integral to um creating that trust and working across both. Um, members of the group who had that lived experience as well as academics um like chris so that was yeah really um That was sort of the approach that we took to the research. So we were involved in that sense.
0: And it's so important for research to be informed by people with lived experience. I find, you know, sometimes there can be a disconnect between people who might work in the academic context and, you know, people who might, you know, be in some position of sort of marginalisation or that sort of thing. For those who might not have had an encounter like this before, I mean, what traditionally happens if police are involved with someone who is experiencing some level of mental distress?
3: Yeah, sure. And Chris, jump in as well here. But um, what we... I guess maybe to take it back a step. So, yeah, uh, various states and territories under mental health legislation, powers are given to um, first responders, including police, to um, apprehend and transport individuals who are um, perceived to be experiencing a mental illness um, to often emergency departments. In the research that we did, we found that people... um, frequently experienced um, quite excessive use of force, including, as you mentioned before, tasering, um, being hit with batons, um, uh, restraining and so on. So um, quite um, confronting and traumatic experiences. Um, We know that police have been playing a much larger role as first responders over the last couple of decades. Their role has increased... Um, and emergency departments um, are often places that people are taken to, um, which are often not suited, um, and people are often waiting for quite, quite some time um, to be seen by someone, and they may not even be admitted um, as well. So that's a bit of a general picture of what what we were talking about, what we were looking at.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I can imagine if someone is experiencing, you know, anxiety, for instance, or might be having some kind of panic attack, being, you know, apprehended by police in that way and then taken off to emergency could be a very additionally kind of distressing experience to go through. Um, Chris, I mean, what level of training do police generally have in dealing with people who might be having some of these sort of complex experiences?
4: Uh, it does vary. Some police get more training than others. The basic... Training for uh, for police is, is pretty limited and um, limited to de-escalation. Some police and p- some participants in this study said that the police were great. So, you know, a very small number and, 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 and unusual um, instances, but they definitely highlighted that. And by and large, I think it's important to understand that... This isn't a few bad apples situation. There are bad apples in there, as there are anywhere, of course. But this is this is government policy that says um, we should send eight or ten police officers into somebody's kitchen. And this is not necessarily. Sometimes these are, pe- these are these are situations where where people are being violent or threatening. That does happen. But the majority of people. Um, not in our, not just in our study, but, but in, um, in uh, studies that have looked um, at everybody who's been taken into emergency departments in Melbourne, um, shows that most of the time it's for suicidality, not for being threatening to someone else. So I can't imagine anything worse if I'm feeling suicidal than being, um, being apprehended by, by police. So I, I, think, I think it's important for listeners to understand that what we're talking about here is not something that immediately looks like police work. Yeah, police work might be when somebody, you know, to disarm somebody with a knife or something like that. Okay, fine. They're very, very unusual circumstances. Mostly, we're not talking about that um, that issue. Yes,
0: yeah, so, so they, so that's expanded, has it? That police have been more and more called upon in, to deal with these kinds of situations. It,
4: essentially, they are the they are the arm of government that has monopoly of, of, on force, more or less, and they they act essentially as a, a kind of um, enforcement arm mm. for mental health services. We, this wasn't widespread in the people we spoke to in our study, but police will often be called up if um, if mental health services don't think people are taking their medication. Not always, but in many situations, the mental health service will, uh, after they, you know, maybe they'll make a few phone calls, they might visit the person at home, and the person doesn't come in to take the medication or, or, or to be given their injection. They'll send out the police to bring them in. So the police are kind of acting in this enforcement role for mental health services. So absolutely it has expanded, absolutely we are saying that, but it has been a gradual and a long-term over, as, as panel said, over many decades.
0: Yeah, I should say as well, I mean, we're obviously talking about some 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 complex and troubling issues here. If this uh, does or has caused any issues for you so far, the number for Lifeline is 131114 and Beyond Blue, 1300 224636. So I'll give those, um, those resources a shout-out at the end as well. We've talked a little bit about sort of some of the findings from this study but Parnos, what were kind of the headline things to emerge from your research?
3: Yeah some of the things I will mention are that generally we found before being apprehended and taken by police people were experiencing um, a lot of disadvantage and exclusion in their lives such as homelessness, housing precarity, family violence and all kinds of trauma. When apprehension happened um, that people often experienced um, various levels of force and sometimes restraining and often people were very fearful that they would be injured by police or killed which is a well-founded belief considering people who use mental health services are six times more likely to be killed by police and we also found that Largely, people talked about their experiences when they got to mental health services or emergency departments as places where that force could continue. So Mm. people described um, being restrained in mental health services, being secluded, involuntarily treated and so on. And people also spoke about changes in their sense of self and identity um, often their experiences um, made people feel a real sense of shame and impacted their relationships with family, community members. And um, in sort of the aftermath, people also spoke about real, tangible, um, harmful long term impacts. So, not just to their sense of well being tra- and trauma and re traumatising people. Um, but also impacts on employment. Like some people spoke about um, the flow-on effects um, being detained after they were taken to mental health services, having their mobile phone removed, which is quite a common experience on mental health units, public mental health units, and losing their job. So not quite significant long-term impacts. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's a range of the things that
0: we heard. And I'd imagine those experiences would compound as well. If you have some of these really um, potentially violent interactions with police, that can then sort of further, you know, exacerbate some issues you might be experiencing, can lower your self-worth, and, and that can sort of lead you down a pretty, a pretty difficult path. I want to sort of talk about what, what alternatives there are in place of, of police respondents. But, Chris, um, what's the role of sort of early intervention here to make sure that those who are in need of help actually have access to that help right when they, they need it in the first instance?
4: Yeah, I, I think early intervention is, is essential, providing the, the support that people need when they need it, and that includes things like housing and an education and access to employment. I mean, these are the drivers of, of mental distress. It's very, very well established um, uh, and has been for many years. So I think those things are important. The other, the other flip side of that, of course, is that if you are worried that, for example, I mean, I heard you give out the Lifeline number before and and Lifeline provided excellent service for, for many people, but many people won't call Lifeline in case the police get called on them. If they say, oh, I'm feeling suicidal and then hang up, then that is a, a direct consequence. I don't want to undermine lifeline here. That's not what I'm about. But yeah. it does drive people away from accessing services and support if they think, oh, if I reach out for help, I'm going to have a, a police car in my driveway um, by by the time the day's over. So there's, there's a flip side to that early intervention is that we need to make sure that there are... Um, uh, accessible options. Those accessible options do exist. They're not widely funded. Um, there are um, groups. Uh, alternatives to suicide, for example, is a peer-run model that is a non-coercive approach to responding uh, to suicide and and, and is, is being evaluated, uh, being being tried and evaluated at the moment. There are a range of those kinds of things where. Um, The the promise is, come to us, we won't detain you, we won't harm you, uh, and and they're much more accessible for people to to engage. Because people are always going to have a crisis. There's going to be situations in people's lives where, where they do hit that crisis, and so we do need to make sure we've got appropriate response services
0: that's such an important insight i think because for those who have maybe never experienced lifeline you know we're told often as broadcasters in the media to give out these these numbers hoping they'll be of support to anyone out there who might be listening and that's absolutely kind of there's a necessity for that but are there any other resources that you think could be really useful for people to access and maybe don't quite get as much as much coverage uh
4: uh, i think every state and territory now has um consumer peak bodies or, Mm. or uh or a lived experience group that um, that will have resources in Victoria, where your listeners will be. That's that's VIMIAC, the Victoria Mental Health Awareness Council. Um, the uh, the problem with these alternatives is that they are not widely available. They're not widely they're not widely funded in the way that Beyond Blue and Lifeline mm. are. And so they're just not accessible for the vast majority of people. And often, even if there are peer run services or, or services that have Peers, they're attached to mental health systems. Um, so there's there's a, a really great initiative that is called warm rooms or or um, kind of cafes, sometimes they're called, and they sit off and right in the same building or next door to an emergency department. So if you go to the emergency department, actually, you don't need a, 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 a triage through the emergency department. You can go to this cafe. It's peer run. All the workers are trained. There may be mental health professionals working in there as well, but it's not you're not having people with, with broken limbs being carted past you and ambulance sirens going, much nicer, calmer alternative and they also have have, um, have good evaluation. So there's a range of alternatives, they're just not widely available.
0: Yeah. And Parnas, what's your sort of great hope coming from this research? What kinds of changes do you think are sort of really important for it to inform?
3: Yeah, I obviously I hope that this report will... Mean that the Royal Commission recommendations that the government committed to two years ago on this topic will um, people will be uh, reminded of the urgency of those and like Chris was saying the need to shift towards a, a more health focused approach with ambulance services playing a much more a larger role. Um, but I something that came out of this research um, was that when we asked people what well, what is your ideal situation what what did you want to happen in this and people often told us that it you know wasn't police uh, like it wasn't ambulance um services it was just someone to sit with them listen to them maybe share a cup of tea and um, people really spoke about valuing peer support and being with someone that's gone through a similar experience so I really hope that um Yeah, the need for that will be highlighted, um, and we'll hopefully see um, like alternatives in this space.
0: And what about for you, Chris? Is there anything else that you sort of want to add to that in terms of, especially in that first response? What kinds of people could sort of take over the role that have been or are being played by police at the moment?
4: I think I think the solution ultimately is that we can't police like like the war on drugs. We can't police our way out of this. What we need is more connected communities where people can go to uh, to their friends and family for for the support that people are left to go to the mental health system. For we need uh, equity, of, as I said, of housing, and employment, and um, and we need a we need a living minimum wage so that people aren't ending up in these in these situations. Like I said, people are always going to end up different points in their lives having having experiences that they find distressing but it is possible to have communities and service systems that provide that support rather than a a police
0: car with a sign. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. It's been so great having you as part of today's show and and shedding much more light on this super crucial research. been speaking with Panos Karanikola as a PhD candidate in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies in the Department of Social Inquiry over at La Trobe University and also Associate Professor Chris Maley at La Trobe University who's um, also got experience as a social worker and lawyer, I understand, as well. Thank you so much. And and, uh, if people want to read this report, where can they find it?
4: Uh, it's on the uh, VIMIAC website and if you Google uh, police apprehension as a response to mental distress, hopefully it'll uh, come up They'll or you can, just e- you can just email me, uh, Google Chris Maley, send me an email. I'm always happy to, to send it on.
0: Yes, and your email address is out there. People can find you in the Latrobe database yeah, as yeah. well. Thanks so much. I'm happy to see you again in the future.
4: Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Dylan.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs, issues and culture program on R. The Grapevine is broadcast live on R every Monday from 9am to midday. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.